electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another Tech Check Plus live stream. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Elliot Robinson of Bessemer Venture Capital. Thank you for doing this, a fellow Canadian, while we're at it as well. Thank you, guys. Honorary Canadian, but it's honorary. As nice as a Canadian, we'll put it that For way. Sure. Um, let's dive into it because it's been a, a while since we've actually talked to you. And what I'm focused on today, I was just talking about this on Tech Check on TV, is what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank today. Last I checked, it was down 40%. And this is a bank that is so tied to the startup yeah. ecosystem. I want to give our audience a stat. Um, I think it was 50% approximately half of all VC investment dollars throughout the economy eventually flow back in as deposits to Silicon Valley Bank. It's at a tough spot right now because especially early stage companies, they continue to burn cash and that's hitting their deposits. Um, Elliot, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, what you said is exactly right. For my entire career and well before that, Silicon Valley Bank has really served as a backbone to the startup venture capital ecosystem. And if you think about, you know, the changes in the market pullback, startups are affected at an even faster rate because they're trying to create market share, trying to uh, coerce new companies to become paying customers. So we're finding ourselves in a, a place where startups typically burn cash. It's getting harder and harder for them to both find new customers to fund their operations, but also folks like myself on the other side, venture capital funding is actually slowed. So in order to shore the startup uh, balance sheet, they have to reduce their burn or actually have to go to places like Silicon Valley Bank to actually loan, uh, to, to generate loans to shore up their own balance sheet. So it's a bit of a compounding cycle. Um, it, they're doing the right things, though. I have mm -hmm. full confidence in Silicon Valley Bank. I think our startups do as well. They're raising yeah. cash, shoring up their balance sheet, doing a combination of different transactions to make sure that they can fund and still serve as that backbone as they have for the past uh, few decades. Yeah, so it feels like, at least to me, that this move in the market, a 40% move, is just astounding. It feels like that's yeah. overdone, especially when you consider that just 3% of total loans are to the earliest stage companies. Yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously a difference between startups and scale-ups. But as we're even going to talk about in the public markets, there is just a renewed focus on being able to fund your own future and become cash flow positive, cash flow break even. So you know, for every startup founder, manager, finance leader uh, out there in startup land, you really do want to think about, can I get to cash flow break even in the next 12 to 18 months? But also, you know, shore up your relationship with folks like Silicon Valley Bank, because they've been great partners. We just want to make sure that startups uh, can have that pathway to be independently funded and don't have to rely on outside sources as much as they have in, say, the past decade when uh, it was a little easier to access cash. Yeah, so we spoke to the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, Greg Becker, um, who I'm sure yeah. you know, a few weeks ago on the program, and he has such a good view, all the data to look at what's happening in this ecosystem. And he thought, like many public market participants as well, that things might get better in the second half of the year. We're not there yet. Things could get worse before they get better. But what are you seeing from 
public market companies in software? Are they preparing for an easier second half of the year? Do you think that this bottoming out process is happening right now? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I would give kind of two anecdotal data points. As a venture capitalist, we spend a lot of time advising our portfolio companies on what their time to actually close new customers is. Um, I've just had two or three board meetings so far this week, and we're seeing that shrink. You know, in Q3 of last year, customers were really sitting on the sidelines. Q4, they were trying to figure out what their own business was. And now that we've got a couple of data points in Q1 around uh, demand for their own business, they're actually open to buying new software and tech products from the startup ecosystem. So we're seeing really? some slow uh, pickup now. We're also seeing funding pace, even at our own firm, we're seeing uh, more potential deals coming through the transom. And that should set up for a much better second half of the year. I mean, it can't get much worse than Q4 and, and potentially the, the front end of Q1. So I'm an internal optimist. Uh, I kind of have to be as a venture capitalist and working with founders that create the impossible. Um, but we're pretty bullish on, you know, at least a pickup in the second half uh, coming out of the first half of the year. Do you have any evidence of that yet? I mean, we've just been through earnings season, which I know is backwards looking, but we've also been talking a lot about these consumption-based models, the big cloud giants, um, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, but also some of the layer down players like a snowflake. Did you anticipate that this consumption-based model would be hit this hard? I mean, it's never really faced this kind of a downturn before. And it turns out that it's really easy for, for companies to turn on and off that enterprise spend. Yeah, I mean, the soup du jour of the last two or three years, you could even call it five, particularly in data infrastructure, as you mentioned, Snowflake, was just the value of consumption-based models, meaning when customers really liked a product and they use more and more of it, you didn't necessarily have to send that sales executive in and recut the deal. It's just as they you know, generated more volume on your software or your platform, you were able to bill them more and generate more revenues and ultimately more cash. Now, what we're seeing on the other side, that's a great dynamic when the market is kind of in a bull run and up and to the right, and that momentum is there. But it's also the same way when the momentum goes the other way or the other side of the hill. So we're seeing consumption-based business models in SaaS uh, and in software more broadly um, being more impacted. I was looking at some data actually this morning that showed it's about 10% faster, the decline in that growth rate and consumption-based businesses versus the traditional subscription or seat licensed businesses, wow. where again, if you see the platform usage waning, you can actually have that conversation with your customer to recut the deal, thinking about pricing differently. You know, Some of the best startups are even thinking about ways to be creative and maybe give a discount ahead of time saying, hey, you're trying to figure out what your own uh, employee base looks like, maybe even a small uh, reduction in force. Let's actually talk about that ahead of time. Let me understand kind of the fundamentals of your business so we can scope a software subscription license that you feel really good about and both sides feel like they're getting that value. And again, that's different from their consumption-based peers where it's kind of marked based on volume and what's yeah. happening in the moment. Do you think companies with a consumption-based model, do you think that they're trying to transition to more of a subscription-based one in this current environment because of how easy it's been for customers to turn that on and off? No, I haven't necessarily seen that, but I do think they're rethinking uh, pricing. So typically in consumption-based models, and you see this on subscription-based as well, you have limiters. So if consumption goes straight line, you can feel pretty interesting and, and pretty good about pricing. But if it goes exponential, uh, you typically have to give some price breaks as that go. 
The question is what happens in the, on the other side of that hill when consumption goes exponentially down? How do we find kind of a, a pricing model that works for both sides? And I think uh, CEOs, CROs are having those conversations with their best clients now. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Elliot, um, is the bio environment. I know it's not exactly your world, but when you think about companies and your companies looking for exits, um, it's been a really tough financing buyout environment, but yet we see these huge software buyouts by the likes of Silver Lake and Tomo Bravo and Vista, Equity Partners. Um, and they kind of fit this mold, right? High subscription-based revenue, a lot of enterprise clients. We were talking about this on TV, I think yesterday or earlier this week. Who are some of the other names? Do you think this is a trend that is likely to continue? How does that change or not change the way that you're investing? Yeah, there, there's a couple of things at play in what you just said. So on the buyout side, you have folks like Tom and Bravo, you have the Vistas of the world, and they have a lot of cash too. And in the run-up of kind of 2019, 2021, you know, deal activity was a little bit lower because valuations were really high. What we find now is we're in a more stable economy. Um, people can kind of predict growth, particularly if you're a large company like a Qualtrics, for example. You kind of know what growth is going to look like. And now the buyout players are saying, okay, predictable business, great install base. Most of the time they're, they're generating uh, predictable cash flows. And those are opportunities. And if you look at the, the publicly traded companies of that ilk, you know, revenue multiples for those companies are now down into the five, six, and seven range. So there's a lot of opportunity to do those deals now uh, and then actually flip it as a private company, eke out even more cash flow, and then figure out exactly what the exit uh, plan will be you know, three, five years from now. For me, I'm a venture capitalist. I'm, I'm investing with the most ambitious, daring yep. founders that you can find that are a little bit earlier. Um, but you never know. We might find some situations in venture backland where companies have achieved you know, 100, 200, 300 million dollars of scale. But because the, the market is cooled and their growth has come down, but they're focused on cash flow, there might actually be some great avenues for liquidity and exits to private equity uh, where right. folks don't feel bad about it. Right. As you said, though, Elliot, you are an eternal optimist. You have to be if you're working in venture capital, especially in this moment. Um, thank you so much. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.